Let me now invite you, brethren, to take out your copy of the Scriptures and turn with me to the Gospel according to John, chapter 3. As we continue to make our way through this marvelous chapter, I think it'd probably be safe to say it's probably one of the most, probably the top five, anyway, most popular chapters in the Bible, along with chapters like Psalm 23 or Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 15, but it certainly probably also contains the most um, popular verse or the most well-known verse in all the world, both among God's people and even unsaved people, which is John 3.16. It's fortunately, I think, getting a little less popular than what it was back in the 70s and 80s, even in schools and such as that. But as the case is, we are working our way through this a uh, couple of verses at a time and We made our way to verse 14 last Lord's Day. We're going to pick up there for the sake of context. And then I want to read down to the verses we're going to look at today, which is verse 18a. I'll just read the first part of verse 18. So follow along as I pick up and reading in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned. This is the Word of God, brethren. Let us go to Him in prayer again. Father, as always, Lord, we look to you in this moment of prayer before the sermon to be pleased to grant illumination to the hearts of your people. Lord, even someone here today without a new heart, that that would be their illumination, Lord, the new birth which we have been studying. And for your people, Lord, we ask that you would give them understanding and attentiveness that, God, they might be able to fathom to some degree the greatness of your gospel, the greatness of your love in the gospel. And that, Lord, we might be sanctified thereby, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I came across an article this past week from the Washington Post website. It was written in May of 2022. The title of the article said, quote, The long and gruesome history of people trying to live forever. Well, here are just two of the first brief paragraphs from that article. The Renaissance philosopher Montaigne quipped that, quote, death has, death has us by the scruff of the neck at every moment. He could have added until finally it strangles us. But what if we knew how to escape death's chokehold? What if we could avoid death and live forever? The second paragraph, immortality might seem like the stuff of science fiction, yet it's increasingly become the focus of real science. In 2013, Google launched Calico, a biotech firm whose objective is to solve death. PayPal co-founder Peter Thiel, meanwhile, has pledged to, quote, fight death. And last year, it was reported that Amazon chairman Jeff Bezos had invested in Altos Labs, a company that plans to rejuvenate cells in order to reverse disease. Well, the article then went on after that to give some examples throughout history 
of men and I guess women as well who tried as all they could, mostly it was the wealthy and well-known people, to uh, figure out how, and they would do anything, to avoid the inevitable, that is, death. Some of them tried some very gruesome things of which it's not even proper for me to tell you what they were. You could Google the, the article yourself. But it, then it, go on, it went on to talk about the great advancements that science has come to these days in learning how to program human cells that they might not degenerate and so forth. But then the article concluded with basically a confession that even with all the advancements in cell technology, we are, quote, still a long way from becoming immortal. Don't book your vacation for the summer of the year 4500 A.D. just yet. Well, brethren, since the fall of man, this quest to want to live forever and not die has been on everybody's mind. Even the days of our Lord, it occurred often. There was one man that came to him, as we know, the rich young ruler, and asked him the question, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? He didn't want to die. And really, though Nicodemus never asked the same question, I wonder if he too, or if this too, was at the heart of why he came to see Jesus. For every single word that comes out of our Lord's mouth to him that night was all about the only way to eternal life. So here it is, brethren, in John 3. It is found in many other places throughout the Bible, but here in John 3 we have one of the clearest and most emphatic statements from the Son of God Himself on how a man can live forever and never die. One can only wonder about the thousands of other gruesome and ridiculous ways that men have tried to prolong their lives in order that they might try to live forever. And yet the entire time, the true way, the only way was right there in the Bible the entire time. And we can be sure, not all, but perhaps many were told about these words of Jesus throughout human history. And they would come along and hear the message of the gospel, and they would shrug it off as something just simply foolish. And then they would take some potion or something else that they thought was not so foolish. They thought it was so foolish, in fact, that it would be something to the kin of somebody just looking at a bronze serpent on a pole and thinking it would save you from a mortal bite from a snake. See, men get very excited, and rightly so, I think, when they find a new cure for diseases. It's a wonderful thing of what technology has done in our own day to help us live without great suffering and even to prolong our lives. But you will notice that the world does not get excited about the message of John chapter 3. And yet what literally lies upon the pages of our Bible in this text can give a man or a woman or child eternal life. And nothing else exists that can. The very thing that man has been searching for for thousands of years and continues to search for today is not only found here in this text, it's absolutely free. All anyone has to do is believe it. No injections to take, no cell manipulation, no drinking kale and spinach smoothies every day. Believe the Word of God to live forever, never perish. All you have to do, the only thing anyone can do to live forever is to look to Jesus Christ for the saving of your eternal soul. This is it. There's nothing more serious than this subject. 
There's nothing more important in all of life, brethren, than what, to learn what is the way to have eternal life. And so I want to bring out three things about the way to eternal life from this passage, about the way. But before I do, I, I want everyone here to know that we will just scratch the surface of all that's here. I, I remember reading one uh, author this week, commentary, that there's so much in these verses of Scripture that each verse could be a sermon in itself. And of course, as I began to study it, I realized that uh, it's probably you could get a sermon out of some phrases and maybe even particular words, like the word world. One Greek lexicon has eight definitions of it. How am I going to take 50 minutes to explain all of that? So we're not. But it is no wonder that one of our verses has been the most beloved verses of Scripture for hundreds of years, John 3.16, for in it one man called it the gospel in miniature. And so with that, I want to bring out from this passage what I want to bring out upon this passage about the way to eternal life. And my first point is this. I want you to see that is that the way to eternal life is freely bestowed by God without discrimination. Without discrimination. The text says in verse 15, again, that whoever believes in him should not perish. Two times, it says it again in verse 16, that whosoever believes in him should not perish. And then, of course, in verse 16, our Lord, uh, perhaps our Lord, we'll talk more about that in a minute, uses the word world here. For God so loved the world. Now, as many as you, of you know here in our church, brethren, that the Armenians love to use the words whosoever to mean much more than it actually does. They tell us that it must mean, first of all, that God had to give man free will to choose to believe in Jesus, or else the offer here would be illegitimate or not legitimate. The focus, however, brethren, is not on man's free will. The focus here, at least one of them, is God's indiscriminate way in which He will save sinners. When Nicodemus heard these words, he did not just shout, out, hallelujah, this, what you just said must mean that I have free will. That is not what he got excited about. Some have translated the words, whosoever believes, as simply all the ones believing in him. The Greek word for all, pas, a P-A-S, is in the text, and it is there, brethren, I think, to show the, that the way of salvation is not simply for the Jews only, but it is for the Gentiles too. And I wonder if this is why Nicodemus, why we don't hear anything else from him in the narrative, because the most shocking thing Nicodemus heard, other than the fact that he had to be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven, was that Jesus had just told him that God saves all who are believing in him will be saved, all. It was a very bad interpretation of the Old Testament that the Jews believed that when the Messiah came, he was going to be a great military figure who would save Israel from the tyranny and the occupation of the Gentiles, and in their case, the Romans. That's the theme that runs through the New Testament, all the way through the Acts. Even the apostle Peter was willing to draw his sword there when the temple guards showed up in the garden to arrest Jesus. But Jesus didn't come to destroy Gentiles for the sake of Israel, but to give his life to save the souls of Gentiles. That was a hard thing for them to get. And here's Jesus, or maybe John. Uh, again, brethren, um, I didn't know this till this week, but there are many commentators, and Sproul is one of them, R.C. Sproul, that believes that 
Uh, it's John the Apostle who's writing that it should be not in red letter, if you have a red letter edition, that from verse 16 to 21, it's just John expounding off what Jesus had just said. I don't know if that's true or not. I'm just going to simply take it as red letter, and we'll maybe find out a different some other day. But I think here is Jesus saying, telling us that God was going to give eternal life to Nicodemus, saying to him that even to the Romans, if they believe. What Nicodemus expected to hear and what he probably wanted to hear was that God so loved Israel that he gave his only begotten son. But when Jesus uses the Greek word here for cosmos, the word we have for world, which is, you know, the word that's used eight different ways, or at least by one common uh, lexicon, it rocked, I think, Nicodemus' world when he heard that. Nicodemus thought the Messiah was going to come and to judge the heathens, but instead he came to die and to save heathens. No way. This cannot be. But this discrimination issue comes up again and again throughout the New Testament. In John 4, later in the next chapter, Jesus goes to see the woman out of the well, and in verse 9 it says, Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink of me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You don't remember Samaritans are half Jew and half Gentile. As we all know, reading the New Testament, there was a great tension and animosity between Jews and Gentiles, and it continued for many years in the early church. In fact, the first recorded Gentile converted after Pentecost was a centurion, a Roman soldier named Cornelius. We learn about this. You won't have to turn there. But Acts 10 is a marvelous chapter. I read over it in reference for the sermon today. Starts off, Peter's having a vision that he can eat pork. Praise the Lord. He doesn't get it yet, but he will. Same time, Cornelius is in Caesarea. He's having a vision. God's talking to him. Hey, send some servants after Peter. He'll come back and tell you what, I, what all this means. Peter gets there after his vision, so he's a little worked up about what he'd been told he could eat. And then he sees Cornelius, the fruit of being born again. And it says in verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Verse 45, and those of the circumcision that's the Jews, who believed were astonished. Why were they astonished? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. So what is being communicated here in our text is that God's plan to save sinners includes everyone from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that was a very hard pill for the Jews to swallow. Nicodemus needed to hear it. The Samaritan woman needed to hear it. But here's the real question this morning, brethren. Do we still need to hear it? Do we? There's no prejudiced people in our church. Uh, there's not a prejudiced bone in, in your bodies, is it, brethren? Is God's gospel, is his great salvation really for all kinds of people? I mean, did Jesus really mean whosoever? Is, is it really God's plan to save from every tribe, every tongue, every nation? Brethren, I wonder sometimes when we think of every tribe, tongue, and nation that we think that in the background of our minds that what this many really means is decent people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Is that what our Lord meant? Whosoever is a decent person and believes in Him will have eternal life. Brethren, I don't know how you feel, but how would you feel about God saving hundreds of illegal immigrants that have crossed the border? 
Oh, yes, Romans 13, and I agree. Every country ought to carry out their laws judiciously, and if that means that they need to or are supposed to be deported back to their own countries, I get it. But, brethren, I wonder, can we become so political and so embittered towards these folks that our first thought is deportation rather than salvation? And it isn't wrong to consider both, law and gospel. But shouldn't we want the gospel to go first in the hopes that they would repent and believe? I mean, it's not like those Catholic countries they're coming from are getting a lot of gospel there. What about mothers who've killed their babies in the womb? Could they be considered among the whosoevers? Again, let the law take its course. I'm even for adding laws that will call that what it is. It's murder. The consequences of sin are going to play out before God and those who are in charge of the law on earth temporarily. But can we become so bitter and angry at the sins of evil and wicked people that we would never consider them to be among God's whosoevers? Do we dare overrule the God of heaven and declare them probably more than likely non-elect anyway? Brethren, I bring this up because it is easy to criticize Nicodemus and perhaps the Jews who would never speak to a Samaritan woman, but are we guilty of doing the same thing in our own hearts? I guess that what I'm saying here is, is do we really and truly see all sinners first and foremost as one of those whom God is willing to save? When we see really bad people, do we shut them off from the gospel because we really hate their sin? That's my concern. When you see and when I see a homosexual couple or some man pretending to be a woman and dressed up like one, is it our natural and even righteous disgust for what we see keeping us from caring whether or not they hear the gospel and end up in heaven rather than hell? It's hard. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. With that in mind, let me ask you, what do you think God saw before he sent Mr. Evangelist into your life to share the gospel? You know, brethren, I promise you, ever how angry and disgusted we may get at seeing and looking at really evil and sinful people, it is nowhere near the anger and disgust that God saw when He first saw you before you were converted. We may not have committed the great evil of other people, but to our God, our pride and our selfishness was a stench in His nostrils. It was much worse and what we think when we see other sinful people. I hope as Christians we all believe this in here. Or else we should really have some concerns about our own understanding of the gospel. Whosoever. What it says. But another glorious application to this first point is this, and this truly is wonderful. And what this means is that now, brethren, we can tell the worst, the worst of worst of sinners, there is no sin so great that God is not willing to forgive them if they but look to Christ. What a wonderful message we can tell people. Is this not a part of what God is communicating to here in the text? Are not the worst of sinners on the planet eligible? to be one of the whosoevers? Are they not eligible to come to Christ if they are a part of the world? 
Let us never forget, brethren, sometimes we may come across those whose sins have so filled them with so much guilt they don't believe God would ever save them. We may not come across many of those. Most are prideful and think they deserve to be saved. But there are some out there, brethren, who think that God should never show them mercy because they're just too sinful. They've, they've committed too many great sins. But this text teaches us to tell them to believe otherwise. For where sin abound, there did grace much more abound. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Brethren, let us not twist the text to say more than it, doesn't, than it says or doesn't say. I don't know who the elect are. You don't either. So everyone is eligible to be having the gospel preached to them, and they are called to believe. So my first point about the way to eternal life is that it is freely bestowed without discrimination. But now secondly, we need to see that the way to eternal life, brethren, is grounded in the love of God the Father. Verse 16, for God, that is the Father, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And so we have certainly seen that God's means to save sinners and giving them eternal life is a Trinitarian involvement, isn't it? We've been studying how the Holy Spirit regenerates, gives them new hearts in the previous verses to spiritually dead sinners. The Son of God assumes to Himself a human humanity in order to die for the sins of His people, of the sinners. And now here, verse 16, tells us that salvation of all who believe was grounded first and foremost in the love of God the Father. It is an unmerited love which he set upon his people before the foundation of the world. Now again, we must deal with the unbiblical Arminian position of this text. Their interpretation is that this is what it means, that God loves every single person who's ever lived on the earth equally. And to prove it, he gave his only begotten son to die on the cross to so as to make salvation possible for anyone who chooses to use their free will to accept it. That's the way they think when they see this verse. That's what they teach. That's what they say. But here's the problem. God did not give his only begotten son to only give a potential salvation. In the Arminian view, theoretically, brethren, speaking, theoretically speaking, it would be possible for everyone to turn down Jesus' offer, and he could have theoretically died for nothing and for no one if it was always left up to the free will of men before the Holy Spirit regenerated them to give them faith. That's what would have happened. So this is their thinking. Here comes these wonderful people who are smart enough, who are humble enough, who are religious enough to take God up on his offer so Jesus didn't have to die in vain. That is what their system teaches, whether they realize it or not, but that is not what the Bible teaches. All the verse is saying is that God so loved the world, Jews and Gentiles, who were formerly wicked and spiritually dead, that all who do believe, they will not perish. They will have eternal life. The emphasis in this text is the greatness of God's gift, not the greatness of man's free will. This is the focus of it. The question is, why are any able to believe? And of course, John does teach that in this book. We've already learned it, haven't we? Back in chapter 1 and verse 13, you're born what? Not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. 
We've just learned in John 3 that unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. Later in John 6, Jesus will make this statement, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted to him by my Father. So yes, John does teach us how God enables men to believe. And so with that clarifying what John 3.16 is not saying, what is it saying? Brethren, that the ground upon which God gave up His only begotten Son to save His people was His love. The only way to eternal life is through and by the love of God the Father. It is a love, of course, that's mediated through the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is the Father's love nonetheless. And it is a love that is immutable. It's not like human love. It is a love that's infinite. We cannot grasp that. You take the the one who's experienced and known the the greatest of love in the heart that any one man could ever absorb and know, and and it's, it's, it's nowhere near getting close to try to get to where God's love is. It is a love that's so unfathomable that no man will ever fully comprehend it. It is of the very essence of who God is. God is love. But what we have here is God's own description of it so that we might attain as much comprehension of His love that we possibly can get using our weak and finite minds. This is is the one He's given us. God's love is infinite, beyond our ability to fully comprehend, but His greatest display of His infinite and immeasurable love was God giving His Son to die for sinful man. If He ever gave us anything above that to demonstrate it, we couldn't handle it. We wouldn't have the ability to handle it, probably with even glorified bodies. I don't know. But this, of course, takes us to Romans 5. For when we were still without strength, with no free will, if you will, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are to see, brethren, in John 3.16, the depth and the greatness of God's love in these words, He so, He so loved that He gave, He gave the biggest and the greatest and the most magnificent and the most glorious gift He could ever give us. The giving is the primary verb. Because God's definition of love is action and sacrifice. It's not warm emotional feelings. So what the Father gave, brethren, do you know what this includes? What the Father gave includes everything concerning what Christ endured to save us. It included the very incarnation itself. What a great chasm of condescension for the eternal Son of God to assume humanity, to allow Himself to enter into, it, as it were, the fallen and cursed world. It included having to live under the law for 33 years. We can't live a day without breaking it. It included the giving of His Son, all the sufferings He endured, perpetrated upon Him by sinful man, all while being completely innocent. 
It included the shame and the reproach of dying on a Roman cross, a death penalty reserved for the most vile and wicked of criminals. And in the end, brethren, the climax of God's love was manifested in the very death of the innocent, holy, and beloved, only begotten Son of God. When we read John 3.16, we are reminded of the shadow and the type in the Old Testament. When God asked Abraham to kill his son, to offer him, he told Abraham, Genesis 22.2, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Brethren, we are to love our God. We are to worship our God because of the greatness of the love manifested to us in giving up for us His only begotten Son. When you come in here and you worship and you don't sing out and you don't give you all, if you've forgotten the love, the love that was poured out for you, you'll never experience or see any other thing any greater than that. Greater love has no man than this than the one to lay down his life for my friends, for his friends. And you are my friends if you what? Do what I have commanded you. God's love is infinite. The fullness of it is beyond human conception, but God condescended to his elect and gave them a, the highest demonstration of his love that we could possibly ever absorb and comprehend with our finite minds. This is it. And I believe, brethren, that it will be the theme and understanding of his love for all eternity. Only thing that will continue to add to our of love, greater love, is being in glory with glorified bodies in a place where there's no sin. And then that song we just sang, when we see those who are perishing, crying out for the rocks, then I'll know how much I owe. So what we've learned about the way of eternal life is that it is freely bestowed by God without discrimination. Secondly, that it is grounded in the love of God the Father. But now lastly, I want you to see that the way of eternal life sets men free from God's condemnation. Verses 15 to 16, we're told again two times that the ones believing in Christ would not perish. We'll get into that more next time. But then we read these words in verse 17 and again 18a, for God did not send His Son into the world to what? To condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And then verse 18 says what? The one who believes in him is not condemned. <laughs> now, as I say, we'll spend more time on, on some of this next when we go further into the text. But what I want to emphasize in this last point is the positive, the glorious reality of living before God without any condemnation. And so the first thing we see here is that this was God's purpose for Christ's first coming, not, not judgment. He will come a second time with judgment, and in some way he is still judging the, the nations now, but there will be a final judgment. But again, this was contrary to the Jewish mindset. They wrongly believed that the Messiah was going to raise up armies and destroy their enemies. But when he came the first time, and this would have been understood had they had a good understanding of their Old Testament, but they, again, it was a wrong interpretation. But what he came to do the first time was to wasn't to destroy the Gentiles, but he came the first time to destroy the greater enemies of all his elect people, the death and the devil. One of those great enemies of ours, brethren, is the fear of death. Kind of came out in that opening article, didn't it? 
People are afraid to die. Rich people are afraid because they don't want to give it up. They're having a good time. I mentioned this before that Arnold Schwarzenegger was in an interview one time. He's like, I hate the fact that I've got to die. I'm living a good life. I expect you are. But there is a fear of death. Hebrews 2 says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Verse 15, And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Dear Christian, don't listen to the lies of the devil. The only reason you would have to fear death is that you're not believing and trusting Christ. Because in Him, you're no longer condemned before God. The only reason you'd be afraid to die is because you're afraid of condemnation of God. And if you're in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. The power of death and the power of the devil that it had over us was because of our sin. And these two enemies were God's just judgment upon the wicked. But in Christ, we are not going to stand in this judgment. Death and suffering in hell forever and ever no longer applies to you because Christ was condemned instead of you. This means Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. That is the ultimate effects of the devil's hold upon us. The great accuser of the brethren who makes you feel condemned by constantly pointing out your sin. And he had a really good case against us, by the way. That is until Jesus died for our sins. And now we're no longer condemned by our God for any of our sins anymore. 1 John 3, 8, for this is the purpose of the Son of God, why He was manifested that He might destroy the works of the devil. There is, brethren, do you believe it now this morning? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yes, there are temporary feelings of condemnation for remaining sins that we commit. But in Christ, even they will be used for God, God's glory and our good. The devil cannot accuse us anymore because Jesus now lives to make intercession for us. He defends us in God's court, and he's never lost a case. The verdict is now no condemnation. Now, I want you to see this. You know this text, but turn with me to Romans chapter 8. I saw uh, Sinclair Ferguson point something out in this text several, a couple of months ago, I guess it was, and I was looking at it again this morning, and I thought, wow, this would be a good place to bring this up. You look at Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. We'll read through to part of verse 35. Notice what it says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, that's John 3, 16, but delivered him up for us all, Jew and Gentiles, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now, pick, look at verse 13 really close. Look at that. He uses this word who, and we have a tendency to read it as a what. What shall condemn us? What shall separate us from the love? But notice it says, who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who's even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love? There is John three sixteen again the love of Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Sinclair Ferguson says the who is the devil. I don't know if he's right or not, but it, it does make sense to me, brethren. He's the accuser of the brethren. 
Who shall, who shall separate us? Who can accuse us? If God is for us, if we are in Christ, we are not condemned. And so this is a good point to remember, brethren, for the purpose of preaching, as you sit out there as Christians, the purpose for our preaching up here this morning is not to condemn you. It is not to make you feel like you're on your way back to hell again. No. It's to clean off the dross, to, to make you, yeah, you're to feel guilt for remaining sins, that you might become more like Christ, to draw nearer to Christ. It's not our purpose in the pulpit to make you feel like you're going to hell. Now, if you're unsaved, you're going to feel that. That's not the purpose for the child of God in preaching. The way eternal life, the way to eternal life, is the only true path to freedom because it takes us to the only place where there is no more condemnation before a holy God. Again, there's much more that I could say on this point, but I'll move now to my applications. We'll look at this more next time. Application number one, do you as a Christian live and walk in this world truly believing you're no longer condemned? Some of you probably aren't, because I know. Do you walk freely in the freedom for which Christ has set you free? So many of God's people say they believe that they're no longer condemned because they're saved in Christ, but they still act and they still live like they're under the bondage of the devil and sin. With that same faith, brethren, that you laid hold of Christ as Savior at your conversion, lay hold of these words and believe him when he tells you, dear one, that before God, you are not condemned. And I can't for the life of remember why the whole church this didn't say amen. When Timothy and I are not for soliciting amens in our sermons. They ought to be something that at least you were saying it in your heart, I think. That truth alone, brethren, should keep us happy in the darkest of our days. Thus, that happiness should be manifested to some degree. It it just isn't right that we could be forgiven of so much and still walk around acting like we're still condemned when we're not. Pastor Timothy came over for for our oversight meeting yesterday, so I'm sharing a little bit what I shared with him in private, but that question, you know, do you have any trials or sins? And so I was telling him how I was a little, you know, I struggle with melancholy in the winter. And I think all of you all know how much I hate cold weather. I am thankful for Costa Rica. I really am. But after he left and I went back over my sermon, I thought, Alpheus, why do you have melancholy? You're not condemned. You're not condemned. Well, secondly, so brethren, rejoice in that truth. That's your application. Believe it as you believe all other biblical truth. Number two, in relationship to my application earlier, if we're to show no discrimination in our sharing of the gospel, then with with what we know about it all, why, brethren, are we not more zealous to share it with other people? I've shared this story before, but it's been a while. When I was at Liberty studying for ministry, one of my classmates shared a story uh, I think he was a pastor at the time, and he was in a Sunday school class, and he had an unbeliever visit him. And the guy had just sat there and heard the, the pastor tell the gospel, explain the gospel. And at the end, the guy stood up right there in front of everybody. So let me, let me get this straight, preacher. You're telling me that unless I repent and trust Jesus and, and uh, take him as my Savior, that I'm going to go to hell to a place that burns and torments forever and ever where the worm dieth not? 
And it's never going to end that this is a horrible, horrible place that once you spend your last breath on this earth, you're going to live there forever and ever unless I hear the gospel and believe it and turn to Jesus. This is what's going to happen? The preacher said, yes. And he stood there and he says, you know what? None of you Christians believe it. He says, if I believe what you people believe, I'd be out there in the streets right now screaming to the top of my lungs, telling everybody about Jesus, but you're not doing it. I'll never forget that story. Now, not everybody's called to be an evangelist. Not everybody's called to maybe even one-on-one be so bold and proclaim the gospel. But brethren, if we really believe these things, should we not give everything else that we can give? Faithfulness to church, faithfulness to giving, faithfulness to prayer. Can you not pray for the lost? Where's your zeal for that? Brethren, we ought to have so much more zeal for the gospel, for the kingdom of God than what we do, knowing what we know. He who believes shall not perish. People are perishing. And many of us are like the Christians in that Sunday school class, they look at us and they, you don't, you don't look like you believe it. You're not acting like you believe it. May the Lord grant us more boldness, brethren. May his great love and the joys of living before him with no condemnation cause us to weep for sinners and to tell them Jesus saves. Jesus saves. So for any of you here not saved, I'm not going to scream at you. But I'm going to tell you that the gospel is true, God's love is real, and he's never going to manifest it any greater than what he's told you in the word of God. There are no other ways to obtain eternal life. And those of you here without Christ, you know what it feels like to walk with condemnation on your heart. You suppress it, so you go look for the pleasures of the world, and that feels good for a while, you don't think about it. But soon as the lights go out at night and you lay on your bed, the darkness shows up and you feel it again, and it happens every night. If you want to be set free from that condemnation, turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. He's a loving Savior, and He's a willing Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this marvelous text. Lord, we just indeed scraped to the top, just the surface of it, and so much, much, much more here. We thank you, Lord, for what we have heard. Pray that, Lord, you will grant us more zeal to walk in the joy of our Lord of no condemnation, to keep short accounts with you that we might enjoy the salvation you so freely have bestowed upon us. Father, help us to love, Lord, those who don't look lovable to us. May we be as our own God in heaven, our Father, to not be discriminating, because of the wickedness of others, for we too ourselves were once evil, even as Paul says in Ephesians 2. So Lord, give us a heart for your word, for your gospel, for sinners, that you would be glorified even in our day, in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.